Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane. Icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Hey everybody, welcome back to another week of Chasing Frets. I'm joined by my co-host Andy Ellis. How you doing, Andy? I am doing well, thank you. And uh, today's this week's guest is Julian Lodge, who's been a longtime buddy and one of our favorite guitar players. And we, we had so much fun with him this week. And today's topic is kind of based, and I go into this a little bit in the episode, kind of based on this piece he wrote for... Uh, John Zorn's Arcana series of books. He had Julian write down 12 observations about guitar, and each one of these 12 has a little mini essay to go with it. And as soon as he sent it to me, Andy, I was like, I got to share this with you. And yeah. we were like, yeah. wow, this is this is really good stuff. It is, it is. And we get a chance to ask the author yes. about a couple of these points. We don't go through all 12. That's up to you, dear listener, to uh, pursue. But we we open the can and dig right in on a couple of these. It's great. Yeah, I would, I would definitely recommend going and checking out this book and, and reading the full thing along with all the other pieces in this book. But what we do is we take a few of these 12 ideas uh, that he wrote about in longer form and just have him touch on them, revisit them. Um, and as you can hear in this episode, I'm, I'm, they're sure to uh, lighten up your creativity and get you thinking about the guitar and about music in different ways, and I think that's that's the whole goal of any of everything in these in this series of books is they want you to uh, view and hear and play music in different ways. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so here's today's episode with Julian Lodge. Today's episode of Chasing Frets is brought to you by Colleen's Guitars, and more specifically, their new 470 JL that was designed in collaboration with Julian Lodge. It's an entirely new hollow body design that Julian and the crew at Collins Guitars have been working on for years. It was designed from the ground up to have the feel, tonal range, and aesthetic qualities that were exciting to both Julian and the crew at Collins. The guitar features Ron Ellis Dynasonic pickups, a Bigsby B3 tremolo, and a unique trestle block construction that was developed by Collins. The 470JL will be released officially in January and will be available to order through authorized Collins dealers. So head on over to CollingsGuitars.com and check it out. Julian, thank you so much for joining us this week. You've been uh, you've been on my list since we first came up with this idea. You were you were near the top. I'm glad it all worked out. Thanks, brother. Oh, it's a privilege, really, really, to be here with both of you. Um, so thank you. Thanks for having me. So I remember this is probably four or five years ago. You messaged me like, "Hey, I got something I want you to read," and you sent me over this PDF. And you mm-hmm. didn't tell me anything really about it. You're like, hey, I wrote this piece for, for John Zorn. Mm-hmm. And uh, you sent me this piece, and it was entitled 12 Observations for a Guitar. Mm-hmm. And it really, like, made me super jealous. I'm like, man, 
I wish you would have wrote that. You would have written that piece for us. <laughs> so what I want to do today is revisit some of those. Okay. And and also point people. Now this is an excerpt. This is a chapter in a. What would you call this? Like a journal he puts together. Yeah, it's kind of it's a collection of written pieces by contemporary musicians, mm-hmm. largely improvising musicians, classical musicians. Uh, and as I understand it, the intention is to compile uh, uh, literature about music making processes, yeah. processes that if someone found hundreds of years from now, they would kind of get a sense of what the community was up to in what is our present day. And um, it's called Arcana. Yeah. And this is your, your piece that we're going to talk about, I believe is in volume eight. Is that, is, 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 I, to be honest, there are so many volumes of this <laughs> yeah. and I, I, uh, I, I've lost track. So I trust you. When you talk about interesting things out of that book, another one that I think is like the chapter right after yours is Ava Mendoza. Oh yeah. Where she interviews herself. Yeah. And it's so right. interesting how like the, it's not just musicians espousing an essay about this or that, like, how like the form of each piece is totally mm. different from mm-hmm. chapter to chapter. And it, even just yeah. that for me as a writer is pretty inspiring. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a heavy, heavy uh, contribution to the, to mm-hmm. the scene. You know, I mean that, that, that I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people, musicians, fellow uh, musicians in New York and in the improvising scene who will reference some edition of that book. You know, I say, oh, did you ever see what Frizzell said and this one about that? Or did you see Guillaume Riley's thing about dreams or this person's philosophy of the Overtone series? It's, it's kind of door number three for uh, uh, sharing musical education. You yeah. know, that's not, not, not following one methodology. So it, 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 it's, it's extremely cool. It's like a peer-reviewed journal for improvisi- improv- yeah, improvising good. musicians. Uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree <laughs> with that. I'd agree with that. So you had these 12 observations and we're not going to go through all 12, but I want to pick out a couple to see, to have you maybe unpack them a little bit and then also maybe think about if your views have changed or how sure. they have not since the time you, you've written this. Fine. Yeah. And one of the interesting things is, and I'm just going to give you the, the title of the, the observation and let you go from okay. there, is okay. guitar is designed to fall, so are you. Right. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what that means for somebody who, who might want to read about it more in the book. Absolutely. So, okay, uh, that particular um, mini essay is really derived from the somatic experience of playing the guitar. And what I mean by that is what's your physical experience of the instrument? And uh, I started playing the guitar when I was very small, and the guitar was much bigger in relation to me um, than it is today. And so a lot of, I would say, tension, strategy, even, like like real tactics, um, came into play as a younger person because I didn't want to drop the guitar, right? I didn't want, it would be embarrassing. It would hurt the guitar. It would be, you know, who knows what would happen. That's what was going through my head. So as I grew up and got taller, basically, I realized that there's probably a third of my, <clears throat> excuse me, a third of my energy going into just bracing the guitar into a fixed position, either on my lap or even when standing with a strap. Um, so I, at some point I realized there was this, I was kind of operating at, you know, a reduced capacity. I didn't feel free to move because I would go to turn and I think, well, no, 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 you can't do that because now it's imbalanced. I uh, can't do that. I might drop it. Or, 
And, and at a certain point, I, I injured my left hand pretty severely playing guitar and lots of it. And one of the uh, programs I followed to rehabilitate was to sit with a guitar in my lap and just kind of rock it to its, I guess, points of being imbalanced. In other words, if it was sitting squarely in my lap, I would rock it forward and find out exactly where the point of no return would be, you know, where the guitar would just face plant. And I would go really slow and I would just kind of let it fall. And then I would put it back in the middle. I'd do it to the side, find the point of no return where it would definitely tip off my lap. I would do it on a couch, you know, or near pillows. And I would let it fall. And what I experienced was being in touch with that uh, I don't even want to say it's fragility because it's really not that fragile, you know, especially guitars are robust and, and so are we for the most part. Um, but, but just the delicacy of these kind of invisible limits of where we're supposed to not go with our bodies and with the guitar, just investigating those was hugely helpful in my rehabilitation of this injury. Because all of a sudden I felt like, no, I'm a guitar player who's 5'11". I'm not a small little boy anymore. And the guitar is actually quite small, and I can move freer, and I don't have to work so hard. Subsequently, I'm less likely to be injured in the way I was when the injury went down. So that's what it means. Look at how the guitar falls. Look at you fall. And it gets a lot more nerdy than that in the article with regard <laughs> to gravity and the relationship to it. But, um, uh, but that's the gist of it. It reminds me when you talked about finding balance with your human body on on in gravity and the earth, and you, you say it much more eloquently than I just did, but it reminds me of, of Tai Chi, and I'm sure. studying, you know, I try to incorporate some of the principles of Tai Chi into my playing today. That's great. Know? That's great. And that idea that your skeletal structure and your muscular structure, uh, if you learn to move with it and in harmony mm. with it that the that gravity is not your enemy but gravity is actually the 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 energy it's not even a force you know that you have to fight right, it's right, an energy right, right, right. that you can use to your advantage oh, moving through the world you know absolutely oh and tai chi and qigong and that that yeah. those disciplines i mean those have been hugely influential in my life, especially when I was in my 20s. And I've just started returning to it um, because it gives you a very palpable connection to it. Yeah. And I also want to underline what you said about gravity not being, a, not viewing it as this antagonistic force. You know, I think we think of gravity as weighty. It pulls us down. And and it, it, it that's not really how it, it, it's kind of not really how it functions. Obviously, as a downward pull, but it, it meets whatever touches the earth with oppositional and equal force, right? So there's kind of the zero sum game where you can, it's the way you see, you could see an object resting on the ground, right? If gravity were like kind of a bully or a jerk, <laughs> it could throw that object at the ceiling, right? It yeah. could overpower it, yeah. but it's always equal. Yeah. And the force that needs to hold a car up and the force that needs to hold you up are different and they're calibrated. Hence, it's very mystical and yeah. wonderful. Um, but 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 and there, but there's another component to this too, which is that structurally speaking, instability is usually the if you're talking about the anatomy of the body, where there's instability, there's usually um, support. And what I mean by that is, if you think of the head sits on the top of the spine, it's it's not not going to fall off the top of your head, right? You know, I mean, it's kind of this big ball on a on a on a spine. 
anatomically speaking, as soon as the head starts to lose its balance, all the musculature of the back is told to, hey, come and help this from falling over. And so you have, the head has to keep falling, the body has to keep catching, the head has to keep falling, the body has to keep catching. That instability to be in touch with that, that that actually triggers like response mechanisms, has a direct relationship to improvised music too, right? Something kind of needs to go wrong for you to have some way to resolve it. And I say wrong in quotations, but I just mean something needs to spark a response. And usually it's instability and it's giving up the sense that you're being pulled down into some unfortunate gravitational orb. <laughs> uh, so it's just good. And like, you know, the, the, the thing with all these micro essays is they're just to get you thinking about it. Uh-huh. I had gone through life never thinking any differently about how you hold a guitar. And I thought, I have to be strong, I have to be planted, and the guitar can't fall. Well, what you see when you see a lot of fellow guitarists is we have, a lot, we have a lot of tight hips and our backs hurt, you know. And the guitar hasn't fallen in 35 years, but we don't feel good. <laughs> so you have to kind of get, you have to kind of recalibrate, I yeah. think, is the way to look at it. So Andy, what was one of your favorites off this list? The one-minute improvisational collection uh which Julian obviously can describe much more clearly than I can. But once upon a time, long before either of you guys were even thought of, I studied with Mick Goodrick, and he had this same thing. It was in the day, the early day of cassettes. This was 1969, 1970 when I studied with him. And so he was um, a proponent of listening to yourself, but... I'm going to let Julian describe the sure. exercise because it's much more nuanced than just recording and playing back and listening to yourself. Oh, that's so cool, though, Andy. That you, uh, yeah, that, that that you one worked with Mick in that era, and and yeah, it's true. Mick Mick is a huge believer of that. Um, yeah, self reflection, recording yourself, but but with a strategy, mm-hmm. you know. So. Uh, in a nutshell, I, I, this particular exercise, is, it comes from Alaudi Matthew, one of the great composers and teachers, wrote several books, uh, some some in the spiritual musical realm, uh, published by Shambhala, one called The Listening Book, very influential to me. The other is something called The Harmonic Experience, which is kind of a iconic work about polyrhythms and harmony. So he spans a wide breadth of the... Uh, uh, kind of uh, academic universe. He gave me a lesson years ago in which he, you know, he basically said, "Go ahead and play something for me." And I was a teenager and I had no real background with improvised music, so to speak. I, I played jazz music and I played blues, but I didn't think of improvising as something you would do apart from a song, right? So I kind of said, "Well, I, what do you want me to play?" So we'll just improvise. And I said, "Yeah, but over what?" And he's like, "No, that's the point." just improvised. I thought, oh, okay, whatever. And so I, I started playing something, played for a few minutes, and at the end of that few minute uh, piece, he said, okay, here's what you got to do. You know, it kind of, clearly he saw uh, the potential <laughs> for me to, to get a lot better. And, uh, and uh, he said, you're going to get a tape recorder and you're going to record, I want you to record uh, 10 one minute long improvised compositions per day. And just to clarify what that means is at the time he was advising using a timer and a recorder as two separate mediums. Nowadays, if you have a phone, you can watch yourself uh, 
you know, how much time you've been playing on your recorder. That's sufficient. The deal is you're trying to score the one minute. So in other words, you don't play for a minute and stop. You play for a few seconds. You notice, okay, we're at 30. That's kind of, you could argue that's the bridge of the piece, right? So at 30 seconds, you have to kind of do some shift. At 45 seconds, you're doing something to bring it in for landing. And by 58, 59 seconds, you're done. Ta-da, that's your piece, right? Now, that's the functional part of it. The, the, the kind of strategy is if you do 10 a day of these, right? His advice was you do 10 a day for a minimum of seven days, and you don't listen to any of them until the eighth day, right? So in a week, you've accumulated 70 minutes of you improvising guitar. Now, for me, and I think I would imagine others, but I can't, I don't want to project, but definitely for me, that was impossible to imagine. If someone said, Julian, play for an hour and 10 minutes, improvise to make it authentic, and I'd be like, no, sorry, (laughs) (laughs) it's not going to happen. What's cool about it is the punchline to all of it is that on the eighth day, you sit down, you listen to all 70 minutes, right? When I did it the first time, I was blown away. I heard all the stuff that I never in a million years would have told you I did on the guitar. Like, I play a lot of D drones, or I play like, folks, you know, vocabulary. I never heard that in the rest of my life. You sit down with a piece of paper and you basically have two halves. On the left half of, uh, left side, I should say, of the paper, you write down trends. These are things you notice. Um, Oh, I play a lot of G chords. Oh, I use a lot of harmonics. Oh, I never use harmonics, right? It's really, they're observations. They're not loaded with any emotional um, charge. you know, I guess if you say, wow, it's incredible, you can write that down. But it's it does it's not that uh, productive to, to really be down on yourself. The right side of the page is the opposite. In a way, um, it's forecasting. So in other words, you'd say, next time I do this, I would love to try more double stops. Next time I'd like to play faster. Next time I'd like uh, bigger endings. Next time, you know, it's a wish list. The, the, the genius part to me of Laudy Matthews, kind of strategy with it is that one it gets you deeply in touch with the way you actually sound but not in a like a martyrdom way like okay let's face it i suck let's listen to it. it's not that at all it's actually quite the opposite it's like it's amazing that you produce so much music and wow and then the second part is you can build a strategy for development that's based on what you do rather than applying things you've been told you should care Mm -hmm. about you know, I, I, more often than not, a teacher's not going to come to you and say, thanks for coming to the lesson, by the way, just my personal agenda, you should use more devil stops. No one cares about the student enough to, and or it would be appropriate enough, I should say. It wouldn't be appropriate for a teacher to tell you what you should cultivate for your own style. Yeah. But you can do it, and this is a nice way to do it. Mm. That's a that's a good one. I and As soon as I read that, I was like, you know, I need to record myself. And I, I probably, in a way, I've, I've caught myself doing a similar thing, not as, not as uh, disciplined as the method mm. you're talking about with chord progressions, especially if I'm collaborating with my band mm. and we're writing a song and we're trying to figure out a chorus. You yeah. know, I might play the verse, just strum the chords to the verse and yeah. keep trying to find, yeah. you know, where, where's the chord for the chorus going to start at, you know what I mean? Right, 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 right. And translating that to improvisation, even if you're not a, a jazz musician, the it just kind of awakens the creativity muscles in your brain in a new way, which I Absolutely. think, again, is the whole goal of this whole list. 
<laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if, if there was like a, a 13th point to the list that never made it on there, oh. I think it, it, it would address just the fact that I personally am trying to appeal to the music fan inside of me. So all efforts are to make music that I enjoy. You know, I want to be a guitar player that I love. I want to be, I, I, I'm the only one who has a chance of making the thing that I specifically want to hear. And I, I sometimes think that through education, we can forget that pretty natively, if we didn't take a guitar lesson ever, we could verbalize what we like and don't like. We can say, yeah, Jeff Beck, awesome. Like that, whatever, whatever critical response mechanism is triggered when we hear things that we love and we don't, that's what we're looking to. That's, that's the reference point we want to use for our own development. Um, what happens, and I'll keep it brief, is that I, I, I feel that we kind of downplay our ability to know what we like and we don't like. We become neutral. Like, I guess I'm good. I guess I'm terrible. I don't really know. Uh, and, and a lot of these exercises and that big essay is just to get you in touch with like, you know, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> you know, or else you would never have bought a record in your life or you never oh, would yeah. have seen a movie or told a friend about a book. You, you know what you like. And so do that and drop the rest. Mm. All right. We're going to touch on, on one more of these, Julian, Please. but I, I highly encourage everybody to go and check out this book and, and read all of these uh, in-depth essays you've, you've written. Cause I, I go, I've gone back to them at least once every couple of months, I'll open the book and, and oh, read man, something here. So cool. But Thanks. the last one I want to, and first of all, you did steal my last question because I was going to ask you what was the 13th <laughs> thing on the list. You can, I'll come up with another one. <laughs> okay. But for the last uh, observation here I want to touch on is once you play a note, it's too late. Mm -hmm. And I now, and me having read yeah. your essay several times, I kind of get the idea of what you're talking about there. But can you briefly describe... Mm -hmm. The idea behind that phrase: once you play a note, sure. it's too late. Absolutely, that's a good. That's a good one. That's really good. <laughs> uh, years ago, I took I studied with an incredible teacher in New York. Her name's Sophia Rosoff, and so Sophia Rosoff at the time was in her mid nineties. Um, wow! And teaching nonstop and just incredible. And she had been teaching pretty steadily in New York since about nineteen forty. And so she and she mostly worked with classical piano players, right? Her teacher is a, was a woman named Abby Whiteside. Abby Whiteside wrote a very important book called Mastering the Chopin Etudes, and and ostensibly introduced a notion about um, piano playing that was not about the micro individual every finger matters kind of approach. It was broader. It was how can you get in touch with um, what Abby and then Sophia would talk about as emotional rhythm of a piece. An emotional rhythm is kind of like if you took a melody or a song and you stripped all the pitches away, obviously we'd be left with syncopation and rhythm, but they're talking about the, 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 you'd be left with still the feeling of the song, even if you didn't have the pitches. And I always use the example just to myself. <laughs> when I forget it, it's like if a car drove by your house right now and they're blasting Thriller by Michael Jackson, you wouldn't be able to hear the notes, but you would somehow triangulate oh that's they're playing thriller right you just know it um so when i went to sophia she had me play a piece and there's various techniques that abby and sophia developed one of them's called splashing it's really hip if you're into it just by the book by abby whiteside and start getting into her teaching but they're they're basically all techniques to get you to 
play the piece without notes. So on a piano, it could be the splashy thing could be you have a passage of eight bars. You basically just throw your hands down on the piano in the rhythm and the tempo of the song and do it until the ear hears the notes that would have been played. It's, really, it's a real subtle thing, but it's not so subtle. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So what I said, once you play the notes, it's too late. It kind of speaks to the fact that there's a lot, often, there's a lot of um, energy put into what I would kind of consider collateral damage, like kind of cleanup patrol. Of You play something you didn't like, and now you're vibrating it to make it more endearing, and now it's you're bending it to do, you're kind of like, you're, you're, you're manipulating it. After the fact. After the fact. Mm -hmm. and, my, and if it worked, oh my God, it'd be great, right? That would be a foolproof way to get through a solo feeling good. You can always, I can always fix it. But in reality, I think sometimes, in my experience, again, it's my own projection, right? It's, it's nothing to do with anyone else. My experience has been such that once you play something, you'll learn more about what to do next if you sit with what happened. Uh, no matter how egregious it might feel. If you play a note and it was underpowered and undercommitted and kind of whatever, great. If you really process that that's what happened, my guess is something will drop in that tells you how to proceed to get that horsepower back, for example. Mm. Or it could be the inverse. Oh, I've played too much. You know, this is a classical class thing with myself as a guitar player. It's like, you play, it's not going well. You play more, it's really not going well. So you play a lot more <laughs> and then you're just depressed, right? <laughs> so that comment about once you play the notes too late speaks to two factions. One is don't try to fix something that happened. It's best to leave it. And it also speaks to this tradition from Abby Whiteside about emotional rhythm. And I highly encourage anyone who has the time and interest to look it up. It's very, mm -hmm. very appropriate to the guitar. Cool. Well, we're going to wrap up, uh, Julian, by uh, me re-asking you a question you've already kind of answered, <laughs> is that let's say there's one more thing you need to add on this list based on your experiences since you wrote this list. What would what would number 13 be? It's a great question. Um, I mean, the, the, I, I frankly, I don't remember how all of them pieced together. I remember at the time feeling like there was a sense that if you did all of these, you would kind of, I mean, it sounds almost silly to say, but you would almost figure out what the missing thing was. Mm -hmm. Like that was the intent. Like, are you, what didn't I say? Now that I've got, now that this has encouraged you to enter a headspace, what hasn't been addressed? Um, so, and I kind of stand by that. I think you have to figure out what didn't I say? What do you still need after, and, and do that. Um, I always think there's more to be said about tuning the guitar, you know? <laughs> I, and I, and frankly, I'm a bit ignorant about all the ways to do it, but I, I would love to, be a little more explicit about that. Mm. Um, I think there could be more to say about accompaniment, but again, it's very situational. Mm -hmm. So it was less appropriate for a, a master list, um, so to speak. So, you know, the best answer is you figure it out. And that seems like what we're all up against anyway. So yeah. uh, I'll roll with it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Julian. Well, thanks so much for hanging with us this week, man. Pleasure. And, such, uh, a, such a treat. Thank and, you, guys. Uh, we'll be back later this week with more from Julian Lodge. Mm -hmm.